Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to Season 3 of Feminist Hot Dog, the podcast about finding joy through feminism and leading your best feminist life. I am thrilled to be back and even more thrilled about today's show. We're kicking off 2020 with a guest I have wanted to interview forever. Her name is Holly Whitaker from Tempest Sobriety School, and she's the author of the fabulous new book, Quit Like a Woman. So if you've ever questioned your relationship with drinking, or you're thinking about making a change for 2020, stay tuned. We have got you covered. All Feminist Hot Dog episodes are special to me, but today's topic is particularly personal, and I'm just going to take a moment at the beginning of the show to talk about why. This is the first in a three-part series about feminism and recovery, which I wanted to do in part to create some space to talk about my own recovery and to come out as a sober person. I drank alcohol, I would say, moderately to heavily for about 25 years, which is bonkers to say out loud. And I would say the last 12 years, I felt like my relationship with alcohol was not healthy. And I tried to control it and kind of reason with my drinking in every way you can imagine, always unsuccessfully, and then finally successfully. And I've been mostly sober with a few small lapses ever since the month I started this podcast in 2018, which is a pretty big coincidence or maybe not a coincidence at all. I don't know. But I'll share more about my own story later And there's a new post about it on the blog. But today, right now, I really want to get to Holly and her story because it is literally life-changing, not just for her, but for thousands of other people. So Holly Whitaker is an entrepreneur who is committed to re-envisioning recovery and flipping the script on ideas that hold many people back from addressing their drinking. Ideas like Anyone who has a problem with alcohol has a sickness or that an alcohol-free life is automatically a life of self-denial or, and this one is key, that you can't stop drinking without admitting that you are powerless. Holly got sober without buying into any of these ideas and she now helps women and non-binary people all over the world do the same through the revolutionary Tempest Online Sobriety School. But before Holly became an author and an influencer and the head of a multi-million dollar company, I think it's really important to state that there was a period in my life where I managed a poor relationship with alcohol, um, drugs, and then cigarettes and and food. And And then it started to just totally manage me. And it got to a point where over the period of 2010 and 2011 and 2012, I just... I mean, there. I don't remember 2011 and most of 2012. It's like this, I just was, I was just surviving. My recovery started because I got to this point and I just couldn't keep it up anymore. I was exhausted. I was working like 60 up to 80 hours a week. I was, I was duct taped together. 
I highly encourage you to read Holly's full recovery story. I'll link it in the show notes. One thing she was really clear about in our interview was that when she started drinking, there was nothing remarkable about her relationship with alcohol. It wasn't like the stories you hear about alcoholics drinking for the first time and finding the love of their life. And I think that this is a really critical point that often gets lost. Anyone can develop a poor relationship with alcohol because alcohol is addictive. Some people may be more or less inclined to abuse alcohol for various reasons, but the idea that some people are just naturally alcoholics and everyone else can drink quote-unquote normally is actually really dangerous for everyone. Okay, back to Holly. I took a week off of work. And it was just, I I hit the skids and that kind of opened up this exploration of my drinking. I, I, I talked to a friend, I worked in, in healthcare. I had a lot of friends that were doctors and I talked to a friend about it. She you know basically said I could go to rehab or start going to AA and that wasn't my way. It wasn't, it was not, it was bad, but it wasn't bad enough to do that. The ultimate turning point for me came one night when I was babysitting for a friend of mine who was also a doctor, a different one, and I was I was talking to him about a coworker's behavior and he said something about borderline personality disorder and when he said it, it was almost as if he he was it just it, it I mean everything in me stood at attention and the second he left I googled borderline personality disorder and when I took a quiz to see if I had it, I showed up like, I mean, I, I was eight out of nine for whatever the, you know, diagnosing criteria were. And, and then, and just to be clear, I, I didn't have borderline personality disorder, but addiction mimics personality disorders are the diagnose, the diagnostic criteria for them. And then when I started to explore what borderline personality disorder was, which by the way, felt like a relief seeing that, then once I did that, it started to lead me down a path about drinking and how alcohol magnifies these psychiatric conditions, behavioral disorders, you know, any sort of mental illness. And then that led me to a place where I started to question. I mean, I think it led me to a place that was safe enough to look at how alcohol was showing up in my life because I had been working against not wanting to be an addict or an alcoholic. I was that was the place I couldn't end up. And coming into it this way, diagnosing myself with a mental illness and then seeing that part of what I would need to do for that mental illness to support myself would mean cutting out alcohol allowed me to observe how alcohol was showing up in my life and to take steps to address it. And that was how it began. And I mean, uh, you know, that was, I think the first step I, I bought a book and uh, about alcohol and that changed everything. I want to go back to a couple of things Holly said earlier when she was talking about AA. It was bad, but it wasn't bad enough to do that. When she was talking about her self-diagnosis. I had been working against not wanting to be an addict or an alcoholic. That was the place I couldn't end up. I can't emphasize enough how much I and so many people I know relate to these comments. 
The fact that I felt like rehab and AA were my only options basically meant I was never going to get help for my drinking because I didn't want to label myself an alcoholic, pure and simple. I didn't believe I was one, and I still don't, but I couldn't stop drinking too much, so that left me in a pretty hopeless place for a long time. Holly did try AA, but it never felt like the right path for her. The reason it didn't feel right wasn't immediately obvious. And even though she's clear now that gender was a huge part of that disconnect, discovering that was part of a long process. I think it's really important to say I didn't identify as a feminist at the beginning of this, and I wasn't. I was, you know, um, pro-choice, and I went to UC Santa Cruz, and, you know, I'd been a member of the Green Party at one point, but I had no awareness at all of, I wouldn't have used um, patriarchy in a sentence, and I would have never, ever identified as a feminist. And I think it's important to understand when I came into this, I also, because I almost backdoored my way into this, the book that I found was called The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. And it was written by a guy named Alan Carr, who is now deceased. And so his book basically said, there is no such thing as an alcoholic. There are drinkers and non-drinkers, just like there's no such thing as a cigarette-aholic. And that conditioning, and then also the, the readings that I did, I was led down a path that um, I would say in my most vulnerable state helped me to frame something that is really hard to frame, which is that alcohol is the only drug that we have to explain why we're not taking it. And it is treated differently than every other drug that exists. Um, And I think having that would not allow me to going, I went to AA and I was resistant at first to go to AA because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to do it. It was just, I'm not that, and I'm not going to do that. It did not feel right. It felt like It felt like I don't want this addiction, but I definitely don't want that thing. And so that was the first level of resistance. The second level of resistance came from, I don't even think I believe in one of the words that is in the organization's name. I don't believe, if I don't believe in alcoholism, if I just believe all of us are not supposed to drink and that alcohol is like cigarettes, then it is going to be, you know, and also Alan Carr's work really cut through some of the some of the things, some of the blind faith that I think a lot of people are expected to um, accept when they step into the program, which I don't think is a bad thing. I just think it's one of those things where I went in, you know, not questioning. I I didn't believe it was really denial that was making me not want to use the program. I, I believed it was, I have a very different belief system than what this organization represents. And so I think that those are the first levels of resistance. I ended up going to AA because I was, because it's the, it's the thing. It's what people do when they're struggling with alcohol. I tried multiple times to quit. And as I was getting stronger, I, my, my last time I quit drinking for good in April, 2013. And my last time quitting, I had, you know, I had tried before I had, and then I had gone out and I had, I had drank again. And I think, there was this ultimate fear within me that I needed to confront that it wasn't just that I shouldn't drink alcohol. It was that I had a problem. And I went to AA because 
I was at it at the end of being able to do it on my own. And that's a really important piece. I needed to actually go and sit in a room with other people that was that were going through what I was going through. And I needed to say, I'm I'm in trouble. And that was, I mean, that was tremendously impactful and important. But all the things that I was doing to support myself in my recovery were really empowering. And then I'd go to a meeting and then afterwards I would, you know, a woman would come up to me and tell me I was going to drink if I didn't, you know, start working with the sponsor or start work, start working the steps that I was just fucking around, that I wasn't doing it right. Um, I made friends within the fellowship that were terrified for me because I wasn't taking it seriously enough and because I, I believed other things. And I think that was where the cracks really started because I was starting to not be afraid of myself. I was starting to trust myself. And for the first time in my life, I was starting to trust that I could be happy and that I could be powerful and that I could be strong. And then I was directly running up against conversations and and unsolicited advice that was running counter to that. And that was where this really like thick tension started to erupt, which was that I felt going to meetings and the things I was encountering were actually undermining what was making me not need to drink. So the feminist part of this, it comes way later. As 2016 happens in the United States and the Trump election, as I'm starting to string things together, as I'm starting to understand the war on drugs, but like at first it was just dumb luck that I found a way that was different. And then it was actually listening to myself for the first time over what outside voices were telling me and then finding by whatever grace of God, (laughs) finding the strength within me to trust that I could be right about myself and what I needed. Trust is a word that comes up over and over again in Holly's writing. She talks about realizing for the first time that she could be trusted to know when she needed help and what kind of help she needed. In addition to learning everything she could about addiction, she instinctually sought out a path that includes serious yoga and meditation practices, working with a therapist, changing her diet, and many other things she tried and either kept or discarded along the way. And as she found her way forward, her confidence in her sobriety grew. But while Holly was growing more comfortable trusting herself, not everyone around her was. I started running up against the words ego and humility because as I started to write and put my work out into the world, I got a lot of people telling me I was narcissistic, self-important, you know, not humble enough, not humble in my work. I mean, it was just really interesting that I was running up against the words that we typically use on individuals in recovery and tell them that they need to embrace in order to be well. And I couldn't find the right, uh, the words to paint my opposition to it, but I would get shredded by somebody that was like, know your place. Um, Who do you think you are for having an opinion about recovery? One of the things I I wrote a piece like a couple years ago about weaponized humility, because I was at a conference, a, a recovery conference for women, and the speaker got up and a woman that I admire deeply, and whose work has like saved my life. And she got up and was just basically telling everybody they need to become more humble, they need to get lower, you know, they needed to surrender more of their power. And I had this like visceral reaction to it and I couldn't quite name it. And then I found um, Carol Lee Flinders work. And I think this is really important. So 
what Carol Lee Flinder is, she's a, she's a Buddhist. She's lived in a meditative co-op in Northern California for decades. And then she's also a professor and a scholar and she studies mystics, like specifically female mystics. And her whole entire work is is based in almost like feminist thought, and then at the same time, she's been you know she has been a disciplined meditator and a, a devoted Buddhist for years and years. And she wrote this book that was called "At the Root of This Longing," and in it, she names why her Buddhism and why her practice of surrender, her practice of quieting her mind, her practice of silence felt so at odds with what feminist feminism tells us to do, and what she narrowed it down to is that. I mean, every, you know, basically every religion, every spiritual path that exists, that we know of, that was created within the last, you know, few millennia and the last few thousand years, all of it is derived under a, pa- a patriarchal structure. And all of it is basically dedicated to the renouncing of male privilege. And so if you look at any sort of lineage you're looking at, um, self-silencing, denial of pleasure, um, destruction of your ego, and uh, enclosure, closing yourself off from the world. And in this, basically, these are things that people coming into a spiritual path are expected to have. And what Flinders said is that when it comes to women, and, and when I say women, I also mean like women as second to, like there is like layers and intersections of this. You know, there are far more identities beyond women that are, that suffer the same fate underneath patriarchy. And so intersection of identity, women is, is just like a, a catch-all for at least second to, but then there's third to, fourth to, fifth to, depending on uh, sexual orientation, race, ethnicity. So I want to just speak broadly here to say I'm speaking about like the experience of women specifically, but also meant I'm, it's meant to also capture all intersections of identity. But specifically what Carolee Flinders like brought up was that if you come into a spiritual path and you're told to silence yourself, you know, to basically deny your true desires to, um, to deconstruct your sense of self and to close yourself off from the world that if you don't have these things that it's pathologizing and women don't have these things. Women have never been able to use their voice freely. Women have never been able to move about freely within the world. Women have never been able to just chase their desires and, and women have never been able to fully express their sense of self in a patriarchal structure that we have, we are basically not um, brimming with all the things that most spiritual paths and spiritual lineages expect us to give up. We don't have those things. And so what Carol Lee Flinders' conclusion is, is that a spiritual quest for a lot of us is going to look like the inverse of what is expected. And when it comes to trust, I mean, I think the question you asked was, why don't we have that? And how could we, I I mean, how could we have that when we've never fully held power? I 
I was talking to one of my friends who's gotten sober through AA and a lot of, a lot of women I'll talk to will read my work and they'll say, well, I definitely had an ego. And like all of us have an ego, all of us have an ego. Like we wouldn't actually be humans if we didn't have an ego. And like, I think that we confuse some of our shitty bits with thinking that we have the same type of ego as a, 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 male, a white male ego. And so I had an ego and I also for sure acted in such a way that like, I don't know if you read the whole Steph Corey thing. She's a female founder of a startup and she was an asshole, a terrible asshole. And I think like, I was a terrible asshole in so many ways. It wasn't that I was just egoless, but I think it's really important to understand I was also not narcissistic and I wasn't like running around with unearned confidence. I didn't, you know, like take jobs on and just absolutely believe I could do it because I've been told my entire life that I own the world. I think we can be assholes, but we can also at the same time have like a total deficit of self because forever we've been looking outward and we've been told that we're not enough, that we need to be better, that we need to be smaller, that we need to be prettier, that we need to be whatever. I did not understand, like, you know, most of my shitty stuff came from basically the cutting off of myself, the shrinking, the, you know, not the, not standing out, not shining, not knowing my greatness. And so when I think of this, I think of how much I had to build that that sense of I'm allowed to trust myself, that the confidence of self, the worth, how much I had to build the, you know, like being allowed to speak, um, trusting that I could speak, um, trusting that I could put my words out into the world and it wouldn't, you know, get me killed, um, taking my seat at the table. Like there was just so much in all of that. There was, you know, everything within me told me I had no right. And so when I look at what my path has been, it has been basically allowing myself to kind of move towards not necessarily, you know, the, I haven't been like gunning for a male ego, but I've had to almost gain a certain sense of this like bigness in order to understand how to renounce it. And so recently I was talking to, I don't know, I was talking, I, I was talking to my coach and I was just explaining to her that like humility was starting to appeal to, appeal to me. Now I've always loved the idea of humility and I've always loved the idea of service, but I have also had to, I, I think, grapple with at the same time, knowing that I also have to stand up and take up space and do things and push against the systems that want me to shut up, sit down, not take up space, not use my voice. And so I think recently, as I have gained some of that through, you know, taking it, through building a sense of self, through building self-confidence, I've started to, I think, understand humility in a different way that I probably couldn't have understood, that I wouldn't have been able to understood seven or eight years ago, because at that time, it would have felt like, I mean, just I don't annihilating something that wasn't even there to begin with. I've almost had to inflate myself in order to have something to renounce. Holly's understanding of the way her identity influenced her recovery and what worked for her in recovery sparked an idea that has grown over the last five years into a podcast, into a blog and a newsletter, into an online sobriety school, and now into her book. She's relied on her professional background in tech-based health startups and her personal background in yoga and other spiritual practices. 
And as her feminism, her anti-racism, and her understanding of intersectionality have grown, they have also become part of her business. And while Holly will be the first to say that many of the ideas that make up Tempest Sobriety School are not new, the way she's combining them and offering them to the world definitely is. When you look at something like smart recovery, you're looking at um, CBT, you know, you're looking at basically like changing and modifying your behavior and identity isn't even brought into it at all. When you're looking at AA, you're looking at something that was built in the thirties and it was built by white men and it was built basically for white men. It still is today uh, 80% white, 60% male. And it looks at essentially two things, the spiritual path and then also community. It's a, a reductive statement, but at the, at the same time, that's basically what it is. When you're going through and using AA, you are not working on your nutrition. Um, your caretaking responsibilities are not taken into consideration. If you're trans, that's not part of it. It's two notes to a degree. And so, and that's kind of how we work within our society. Like our healthcare system is reductive. It's constantly boiling things down and specializing and cutting us up into tiny little parts. And so we have a, an eye doctor and we have a cancer doctor and we have a heart doctor. We're just, you know, basically parts instead of a whole. And when we look at, when Tempest looks at recovery, I think it's so important to understand that when you're looking at a human and why they're using drugs and alcohol in the first place, you have to consider their whole entire existence. You have to consider what's going on inside of them, what their spirituality is, um, their psychology, their sociology, their knowledge base. There's like, there's so much, like there's a ton of internal stuff. And then you also have to take into consideration someone's physical body. Um, and then you have to take into consideration the environment that person belongs to or lives in. And then you also have to take into consideration how that person find shared meaning and belonging in the world. And so when you're looking at somebody and if you're just saying, you know, work this spiritual path and go and sit in the circle and, you know, find community this way, work with a sponsor, work these 12 steps. Um, and, and you're discounting like, let's say um, a divorced mother, single mom working three jobs or a person of color or a trans person of color. If you're, if you're discounting, First of all, the identity of that person, if you're discounting the socioeconomic background of that person, if you're discounting privilege, if you're discounting health, and if you're di like, then you're missing the whole point of it because we don't drink just because of our spirituality. We, we drink because of the conditions of our existence. And all of those things, every single piece of our existence matters in recovery because recovery doesn't happen in a vacuum. It touches our relationships. It touches our environment. It touches, I mean, like our purpose, our creativity, our health. Like every, it, there is not one area in my own sobriety. There's not one area of my life that has not been influenced first by my use of drugs and alcohol and now by my not use of those things. And so when we design Tempest, we essentially first and foremost take into account that individuals coming through this are whole individuals. They have jobs and they have relationships and they have homes and they have cities and environments um, and they have identities and all of those things are influencing why they use drugs and alcohol and also are influencing how they recover from that. 
And so for us, you know, we're very clear, we're working to help people break out of the cycle of addiction, you know, examine their relationship with alcohol, break out of it. And then at the same time, we're also here to help people, you know, examine the whole of their existence and to understand how to find recovery in a way that honors that existence. I asked Holly what was next for Tempest. She said that her team has been working on building in real life recovery communities, helping people take the healing they do online and bring it into their real lives, the whole real lives that Tempest honors and prepares them to fully embrace and explore as a person in recovery. There was an article in the New York Times about what the next Facebook is. The next Facebook is in real life community. And for us, we understand deeply that people need to meet people in real life. I mean, AA is super successful because it's in every city. And for us, we need to be able to create real-life communities for our members um, throughout the United States and throughout the world. So there's that. There's also, um, we have been working for a bit on our membership program. And so it's far less about acute treatment. It really is about finding and allowing for a continued growth of recovery for, you know, forever. Um, I am, I've been sober since 2013 and in some ways I feel like I'm just getting started on the things. Um, I've done a lot of work and I have a lot of work. And so for us, it's creating a real sustainable program that people can stay with and evolve through. I think those are two really big things. And I'd say a third thing is, um, you know, for us, it's also redefining what the word recovery means. I think there's some words that just need to be asked. I think alcoholic, I think addict, junkie, those are, to me, those are not words that need to be saved and, um, and claimed. I think, though, that the word recovery is one that's largely misunderstood and something that we're trying to reclaim in a way so that the word in itself holds the value that I think so many humans and not just people that are severely sick from alcohol addiction, but all humans need. Finding a balance between what all humans need and what we as individuals need is key to any treatment modality. I know that, for me, being able to learn from what other people had been through and finding what was common about our experiences with drinking was incredibly comforting and revealing. In many ways, I liked knowing that I wasn't unique because it meant I wasn't alone. But I also know that I tried to quit drinking dozens of times over the years, and the time it finally worked came about three months after I started, quote unquote, working on myself and taking my personal development seriously. When I started meditating, visualizing my future, and reading a lot about different ways to align my life and my choices to my values. This was accidental. I didn't do any of that with the plan of quitting drinking. But when I look back, it's clear to me that it's no accident that the time I was able to stop came after I had laid a foundation of introspection and growth that was specific to me, to my life, my needs, my values, and my goals. I love so-called quit lit. I've read dozens of books by women who've quit drinking. And like I said, Finding those common experiences has been a critical part of my recovery and has shaped my feminism in a number of ways. I'll link some of my favorites in the show notes, and I'll say more about them in the blog post as well. But Quit Like a Woman is a different kind of book. It puts drinking and recovery in a social and spiritual context in a way that really flipped the script for me, the way Alan Carr's book did for Holly. 
I can't recommend it enough. And I think it's a great example of the transformative power of feminism and looking at life through a feminist lens. I want to end this episode with a message about life after drinking. For years, I felt like drinking was something I really wanted to do. I loved it and it was part of my identity. And then at some point, it started to feel like something I didn't want to do, but I didn't know how not to do it because it was so central to who I was. A life without drinking felt like a loss to me, a life of denial and deprivation. But what I found is that it's the opposite, that the energy I used to put into seeking out wine, making sure there was enough wine, worrying if I was drinking more than everyone else, worrying that I said something embarrassing, waking up and waiting for the level of my hangover to register and feeling ashamed about all of it. Now I can put that energy into being the best version of myself that I've ever been. And knowing that I truly am myself all the time is the most liberating feeling I've ever experienced. And what's made my feminist heart sing lately is how many listeners have reached out to me since I started posting about Holly's book and about my own sobriety. It is clearly hitting home with a lot of people. I'm excited to keep the conversation going over the next two episodes in this series. We'll be talking with Jocelyn Harvey about her book, Recovering the Home, and how changing your surroundings can support sobriety. And with Nina Sarhan about the connections between alcohol use and sexual assault and how both have influenced her sobriety and her feminism. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss either of those conversations. As always, I hope you'll follow Feminist Hot Dog on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and sign up for the free newsletter at FeministHotDog.com. If you like the show, please leave a review so more listeners can find us. Our theme music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music. And this week's show was edited by me. Thanks again to Holly Whitaker for helping kick off season three and to all of you for listening. Until next time, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO-FM.